Well, thank you, Matt and worship team. I was blessed. I hope you all were as well. Um, we're going to look at the life of Joseph today. Hmm. Let's move that. I walk around a little bit here, so try to remember to. I don't want to knock myself out. Um, we're going to talk about the life of Joseph today. And uh, when Neil was doing his Old Testament legacies thing, uh, I thought, wow, if I get an opportunity to have a shot at that, uh, I'd love to do Joseph if no one else takes that. It's a big story, so we're going to have to be very quick about it all. And um, it's a great story. Uh, I had the opportunity one time to teach a, a Bible study to uh, some Chinese students that had never heard a word from the Bible. And uh, when I was going through the story of Joseph with them, they were like enthralled. And I thought, you know, that is such a great story. Uh, we who grow up with it, you know, it kind of like, yeah, we know what happens next. But, you know, I mean, it is really a tremendous story. And so, um, uh, as uh, we know, uh, there are a lot of dysfunctional families all around us. Um, uh, there are a lot of dysfunctional families all around us, and the family of Joseph was a dysfunctional family. Now, if I could ask you to take your Bible and turn to Genesis 41, um, and we're going to read this in the middle of the message instead of at the beginning, but I want you to be all ready by having your Bible open to uh, Genesis uh, 41. So, um, as we were saying, there, there are a lot of dysfunctional families uh, all around us, in fact, if you came from a home where mom and dad lived together in faithfulness and in love and there weren't severe sibling rivalries among you and they just loved you, you're a very blessed person. And uh, you ought to be so grateful for that that though today is not Mother's Day or Father's Day, you give your mom and dad, if possible, a call and thank them for that just tremendous gift that they gave to you. But unfortunately, um, you're not in the majority. The majority of us came from homes that were uh, smitten with dysfunction to one degree or another. Let me read down a list of potential things that may have uh, affected the functionality of our homes. Uh, Some of us were raised in homes where someone struggled with some form of mental illness. Or maybe the home revolved around the handicap of one person. Maybe there was the abuse of alcohol and drugs that had a profound impact on your family. Maybe you were physically or psychologically or sexually abused. Maybe you were neglected. Maybe your parents were over-controlling. Maybe your parents were overly permissive and gave you the feeling that they didn't care about you. Maybe um, there was uh, marital infidelity uh, that struck your home. Or maybe one of your parents abandoned the home. Maybe there was a very unwholesome way of handling conflict within your home. Maybe there was a divorce. Maybe there was a step-parent. Maybe there was severe sibling rivalry. Maybe the home that you grew up in was traumatized by a stillborn child or the death of a child or the death of a parent, a suicide, a murder, an illegitimate pregnancy, a homosexual family member, an abortion, a rape, incest, pornographic activity, uh, a, a jail sentence. I mean, 
we could go on and on. And uh, unfortunately, the majority of homes in the United States these days have been affected by these things. And I'm not just talking about those that make appearances on the Jerry Springer show, those that appear on Maury Povich or in front of all those judge programs. I'm talking about the majority of people that are in this room right here this morning. Obviously, we can't show you in one message the way out of all those situations that were listed there. However, I do want each of you to walk away from church this morning with hope in your heart that the Lord can give you triumph over your traumas. Just as he gave Joseph triumph over his trauma. Perhaps it would be a comfort to you, and I will admit that it would be a strange comfort, but maybe it would be a comfort for you to realize that most of the families that are in the Bible were dysfunctional families. And maybe it would be a comfort to you to know that Joseph came from a dysfunctional family. You you remember the story, right? Uh, Jacob was his father. He had two wives. I mean, right there, you're getting off the wrong foot. I mean, I don't even, I can't handle one wife. I don't know what men do with two, all right? So there's a problem there. But the problem was that he had a favorite wife that he loved more than the other. And it was the one that he loved more than the other that wasn't bearing him any children. The other one was. But when the one that he loved more than the other finally bore him a child, that child, namely Joseph, became his favorite child. While he sends all the other kids out to to pasture, to graze those uh, sheep in the hills of Palestine, Uh, Joseph is daddy's boy. He's back home. And uh, the father overtly gave him a very expensive robe, distinguishing him from all the other sons. And talk about sibling rivalry. There was so much sibling rivalry there that they hated their brother Joseph. And one day dad sends him out to uh, uh, take a message. I can't remember the details now, but sends him out to his brothers. And as he goes, they start plotting in their head. This is our opportunity to get rid of this problem child. And we can kill him. So they take and they throw him into a pit out of which he couldn't get out. They take his robe, they tear it all up, they dip it in animal blood so they can deceive their father into thinking that uh, a, a lion perhaps or some form of animal mauled him to death. And uh, then they saw some Ishmaelite traders coming down the road with a, a bunch of slaves in their cargo and, and they decided, you know what? Uh, Instead of being guilty of murder, we could sell him, we could get some money for it, and the problem child would disappear forever. And so they sold him to these uh, Ishmaelites instead. Now, I want you to think about this. Joseph is 15 or 16 years old when this happens. Do you think that his psyche went unscathed? Don't you think that he would experience the same things, the same post-traumatic stress disorder that any other 15 or 16-year-old who is taken from their home and, uh, and loses control of their life and becomes the property of another person. There was some real psychological damage that was done in this process. And you'll remember when a 14-year-old, some of you, most of you will remember, 
when a 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart was abducted by Brian Mitchell from her home while she was sleeping one night. And he took her out in the woods and he performed a wedding ceremony and then he did the unthinkable. And he held this girl for nine months before someone finally who had watched America's Most Wanted kind of got a sense in a store that this might be the family and sure enough it was. But Elizabeth Smart was smitten with post-traumatic stress disorder and spent years in psychotherapy working it over, and only God knows to what degree she has been healed from this. But, thankfully, she was able to uh, recently get married, and and maybe that's a a good sign uh, of health. Now, the scriptures don't specifically say that Joseph went through post-traumatic stress disorder, but I think it's very safe for us to assume that he did, with all of its uh, upsetting memories and flashbacks and nightmares, with the inability to remember some aspects of the trauma and feelings of emotional numbness and not expecting to ever have a normal life and having difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, difficulty concentrating and finding oneself very jumpy and very edgy. I think we can be sure that Joseph experienced some of those symptoms. Now, by God's sovereignty, Joseph was privileged to have been sold into the family, a distinguished family, of a man named Potiphar, who was in charge of the pharaohs or the king of Egypt's uh, secret service to protect the the king. And uh, he served well, and Potiphar really liked him. But uh, unfortunately, Potiphar's wife really liked him in a very different way and sought day after day to seduce him. And Joseph uh, would say to her day after day, I cannot sin against my master and I cannot sin against my God. And then in a classic case of passive, aggressive behavior, one day she turned on him and she grabbed his coat as he sought to run from her. She started yelling, rape, rape, and without a trial. Joseph, or while the details were being sorted out, Joseph was sent to a dungeon where he spent the next two years or more of his life. And after a short time in that dungeon, he got two new cellmates. One was the uh, king's cupbearer, and the other was the king's baker. They were supposed to protect the king from assassination attempts through the ingestion of beverage and food. And um, uh, why they were there, the the Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, But uh, while they were in the prison with Joseph, uh, one night they both had a dream. And this isn't a dream like just any old dream. This was obviously distinguished. There was a supernatural being out there that was trying to communicate something to them. And Joseph had the ability, the God-given ability, to interpret dreams that had come from God. And so as the um, uh, as they shared their dreams with him, uh, the good news for the cupbearer is that he was going to be acquitted and he was going to live. But Joseph informed the baker, and I would think that would be a pretty tough job, that he was going to be found guilty and was going to be killed by the Pharaoh. So they're in uh, prison, and sure enough, things happen exactly as Joseph had said. Uh, The uh, 
Baker was killed, the cupbearer was uh, released and returned to his duties. But then one day, the pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had a dream that he knew that some supernatural god was out there trying to communicate something to him. And uh, it was then that the cupbearer remembered this guy Joseph that he met in prison. And he said, I know a man that uh, can, can probably... Uh, interpret that dream for you. And I I can imagine Joseph just being in the dungeon one day and uh, all of a sudden, you know, the lights come on and and uh, and guys are in there and saying, you got to get dressed up. You got to get shaved. You got to get cleaned up. You're going before the Pharaoh. And uh, Joseph went before the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh had this dream in which he saw nine or or, excuse me, seven uh, fat cows and seven skinny cows. And um, Joseph explained to him, through the ability that God had given him, that the fat cows represented seven years of bumper crops, when uh, uh, harvests were going to be just exceptionally uh, uh, plentiful. And that during those seven years, Pharaoh was to take and store up food for the seven years that would follow, in which there would be scarcity and in which there would be famine. Well, Pharaoh was just so excited to know the interpretation of the dream, to know the future, to know how to manage his kingdom, that uh, he appointed Joseph and gave Joseph this very privileged and powerful position to be in charge of the food storage program during the seven prosperous years and the food distribution program during the seven years of scarcity. And this is where I would ask you to turn your attention to Genesis 41, beginning at verse 44. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but no one will be able to raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt without your permission. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name ZP and gave him a wife, Asenath, daughter of Pantophera, priest at Nan, and Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Now notice, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of the Pharaoh. And Joseph left Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of abundance, the land produced outstanding harvest. Joseph gathered all the excess food in the land of Egypt during the seven years and put it in the cities. He put the food in every city from the fields around it. So Joseph stored up grain in such abundance like the sands of the sea that he stopped measuring it because it was beyond measure. And two sons were born to Joseph uh, before the years of famine arrived. Asenath, his wife, bore them to him. And uh, Joseph named the first one Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. And the second son he named Ephraim, meaning God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So somewhere between the age of 30 and 37, Joseph got married and had two children. And he named the first one Manasseh. Oh, okay. He named the first one Manasseh. And Manasseh means God has enabled me to forget... um, the pain that I've gone through. In other words, he named that son as a memorial of a moment in his life when he realized that at last God had enabled him to overcome this post-traumatic stress disorder that he'd been dealing with 
for all these years. He was now able to forget. He was able to not be bogged down uh, by the past. The past was not a heavy burden that he was dragging behind him as he moved into the future. The future now looked bright. The future now looked productive. It looked prosperous. And that is why he named his second son uh, Ephraim, as it says in verse 52, that God made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, there is um, none of us that, that wouldn't like to be fruitful. In fact, uh, every human being was intended to be fruitful in the service of God. And uh, that is certainly true of us when we are born again. We desire to be uh, used of God to make a difference in the world. And life just isn't very full uh, if we aren't. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit that will last. And so um, where are you at this morning? in the process of uh, moving from the traumas of your past into the prosperity, the productivity, the fruitfulness of your future. Are you one who is still heavily bogged down by these things? Or can you remember a moment when if you had a child that you were going to name as a memorial, you would say, God has enabled me to forget. God has enabled me to be fruitful. Now again, we can't specifically deal with every situation, but there's some generalities. There's some common things that we can, and there's three key words that uh, I would like to share with you today. The first is the word God. We read in the scriptures that uh, we are God's workmanship. In other words, God is making a project out of you. He is uh, skillfully working in your life. If you are a born-again Christian who has, by the grace of God, been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And he who started a good work in us is going to carry it on until the day of completion. He's making something new out of our lives, something good out of our lives, something beautiful out of our lives. Sometimes it feels like all we have to present to him is the dust and ashes and the mud and the mire of our lives. But he says that he's taking that. And he's making something good out of it because it is God who is working in you, enabling you to both desire and to work out his good purposes. And so God is working in us to bring about recovery, to bring about healing, to bring about maturity and so forth. But in a sense, that is also a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, it says that if those things aren't happening in our lives, then there's a chance here that we're not cooperating with God's work in our life. We're not staying in step with what he's doing in our lives. Or it may mean that we're simply looking in the wrong places. It may mean that we're looking for uh, time to heal. It may mean that we're looking for Prince Charming to heal. It may mean that we're looking for um, uh, psychotherapy to bring about healing. And we're looking to something other than God for our ultimate healing. But what does it say in Psalm 42? It says that, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? 
Put your hope in God. Not put your hope in psychotherapy, although I'm not opposed to psychotherapy. I mean, these are means that God can use, but ultimately, we want to find our hope in God. We want to be saying, God, I, I call out to you to give me triumph over the traumas of my past. I call out, I, I cry out to you, Jesus, to bring about a recovery and to make me the fruitful Christian that you want me to be. I'm tired of being all bogged down by my past. I'm looking for deliverance, and I'm looking to you, Lord Jesus. I'm looking to you, Lord God. But there's a second key word, and that is the word patience, because um, it does take patience. Uh, The way that God works is usually very gradual. Um, It's not to say that he can't work suddenly. In fact, uh, I don't know how many of you have read this book, Unbroken, uh, it's about uh, Louis Zamborini, who was um, a uh, in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, and uh, talk about post-traumatic. Well, talk about abuse and talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, when he got out of the military and he was finally rescued and finally freed, uh, he, he turned to alcohol. He was a, a edgy man. He couldn't sleep. He was abusive to his wife. Then he went to a Billy Graham crusade and he accepted Jesus Christ as his savior and he was instantly healed. So God can instantly heal these traumas that we have. But as a general rule, it takes God time. And I'm sure. Now, how long did it take him in the life of Joseph? Uh, We have to figure that it took between uh, 15 and 22 years. I myself was uh, raised in a dysfunctional family. And I don't mean to bring any degree of dishonor to my parents by saying that. Uh, But I do think that there are times in my childhood that by today's standards, uh, DSS might have stepped in. And um, I was in my 40s before I finally had that moment, that Manasseh moment, when I could say that... uh, Wow, God has set me free from my past. And now the future looks completely bright and the future looks fruitful. And so, you know, God takes his time at doing these things. I remember like when I was in junior high school, you know, you'd you'd, you'd get ready for school in the fall and you'd put on your pants that you wore last June and you go, oh my goodness, I must have grown over the summer. Well, that's kind of how spiritual growth is. I mean, we don't see it happening. But it happens, and uh, it's a very gradual process. And so the important thing is that God is working in you, and you can see these little signs of uh, growth and improvement along the way, but you have to realize that it is going to take time and patience. And then finally, in my case, it came down to forgiveness. There were people that had hurt me that I had to forgive, And I see the same thing in the Joseph story. The famine also hit Palestine, not just Egypt. And Joseph's brothers were scrambling for food. And they heard there was food in Egypt, having no idea that their brother was in charge of that distribution program. Not even recognizing him as they stood before him, but he recognized them. And to make a long story short, there came that moment when he revealed his identity to them. And they thought for sure 
that they were dead men right there and then because they knew they were dealing with a very powerful figure. But um, Joseph said, no, I have forgiven you. I can see God's purposes in this. God meant this stuff to happen for good. And so I don't want you to be fearful. I want you to bring your families. I want you to bring my father. I want you to come live in the land of Egypt, and I will take care of you. And they had no choice but to go along with that proposal. But, you know, they did have this constant fear in the back of their mind that maybe we're just being kept alive so as not to add further grief to our father. So when the father dies, they come trotting up to Joseph and saying, you know, we would really be honored to serve as your slaves because they didn't think they were forgiven. And Joseph said, no, 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 I have forgiven you. In fact, what he exactly said was, um, oh boy, uh, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And they finally believed that their forgiveness was real. And so um, if you, if part of the trauma of your life was that someone hurt you, you're never going to get off of that hook. It's always going to drag you down until you look to God to enable you to forgive. Now let me say a few quick things about forgiveness and oh I have so much trouble with hope pulpits because I didn't have these limitations when I uh, um, was uh, in my previous church. So let me do this real quick. These are the blanks that you want to fill in in your notes, all right? Forgiveness does not let the person who hurt you off the hook. It lets you off the hook of your past. I don't have time to explain it. Just write it down and, and think about it. Forgiveness is you giving to someone else an expensive gift they do not deserve. Just like our Heavenly Father gave us an expensive gift that we do not deserve when He forgave us of all our sins against Him. Amen? Forgiveness comes easier when an apology is offered, but forgiveness can be given when no apology is offered. And it could be that some of the people that you need to forgive uh, may be dead and gone, may be completely out of your life. You'd have no way of getting in touch with them. You can still forgive them. And then if you can't forgive them, you can't overcome your past traumas. And so, um, in summary, in general, regardless of what your trauma is, look to God. Cry out to Jesus. Change me, Jesus. Deliver me. And be patient as he does. And work on forgiving the people that have sinned against you. If this is okay. I, I, I'll be up front here after the service. And if there's anyone that I can pray with, uh, just a simple prayer of God putting you on a, a healing course, it would be my pleasure to do so. Or if you have any other business that you'd like to conduct with me. But Lord Jesus, it feels like um, all we have to offer sometimes is the mess that we're in. And uh, yet we feel your arms around us as the power of your healing begins. Please breathe new life right through us like a mighty rushing wind. Make something beautiful, something new, something good out of our lives. We will wait patiently for you, Lord, but turn to us and hear our cries. Lift us out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and set our feet on the rock. Put a new song in our mouth, a hymn of praise to your glory. And may many see the work that you do in us. 
and end up putting their trust in you. Glorify yourself through answering this prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.